1: taking place in boston from october 25th through the 28th this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth that's hbs.me growth
0: hill hayward ingles johnson and gobert hill comes off a of gobert pick free throw line open jumper got it the off-season trade of George Hill, showing the calmness late in the game, Jazz by 10. You are Locked On Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It is Locked On Jazz, the 2nd of May. The preview of the series leading of Locked. On Warriors. Plus, I'll give you my breakdown first as we get ready for game one of the second round. Jazz and the Warriors, all on today's edition of Locked on Jazz. How are you? I'm David Locke, radio voice of Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA Insider. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. Super glad to have you involved. Super glad that you're listening whenever it might be. And aren't you super glad that we're in the second round of the playoffs? I'm so, so fired up. Uh, so well, here's what the plan is. I think I just told you pretty well. We'll do our regular pin here in a second, and then we'll—I'll uh, give you some notes and breakdowns on how I see the series and what I think's got to happen, and then Danny Larue and I will chat, and that'll wrap us up. So it should be should be fun. Uh, big radio broadcast tonight. Uh, Kristen Kenny is in town; she'll do some work with us. Tony Parks is in town; he'll do some work with us. So we have got a four man, four person radio crew uh, rolling today. It's your only local broadcast, so I hope you tune into the radio uh, along the way. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient recipe delivery service in the country we've become a blue apron family it's not something i ever thought we would do uh part of my wife's unbelievable and she's just a great cook and yet so i thought we'd be kind of the last people to become blue apron family exact opposite it just it's so good it's so easy it's so fun for the kids really is the part my wife likes the best is that the kids have gotten involved and they're often cooking the meal. So the way Blue Apron works is you go to blueapron.com, and then you can choose which meal plan works for you, whether it's two times a week, three times a week, four times a week, uh, whatever it might be. And then they deliver the meal to you, whether it's a beef teriyaki stir-fry with sugar snappies and lime rice, the crispy salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds and uh, a great sauce. We had uh, really good turkey burgers the other day. And so... It comes, each recipe comes individually packed and uh, with a recipe card, and you just follow it. So our 12-year-old daughter's done a lot of it. Uh, my son, who's actually kind of a good cook anyway at 14, uh, has done of it. So it comes step-by-step, easy to follow, pre-portioned ingredients, and, and you do it. And then the great thing, it's affordable, less than $10 per meal, and uh, has great variety and it's fresh. The, you know that's their biggest thing. Their biggest thing is kind of the quality um, that you are going to be able to get uh, with their connections uh, sourced sustainably under you know partnerships with Monterey Bay Aquarium and beef, chicken, and pork from uh, reasonably raised animals and pro, uh, produce that's sourced from farms that practice uh, regenerative farming. They're really proud of that, so it's really really cool. It's BlueApron.com/slash. Uh, Lock, L-O-C-K, Jazz, J-A-Z-Z, L-O-C-K, J-A-Z-Z, super, super, super cool, Um, and really glad to have them involved in in supporting the show, and we've actually had a, it's really been fun for our family, so check it out, blueapron.com, slash L-O-C-K, J-A-Z-Z, and you get three meals for free with free shipping. Uh, if you do that, L O C K J A Z Z. I forgot about the whole three free meals thing. It's like that's the that's the whole key deal there for you. Why you want to do it? But I was just so excited about what they what they've done for it uh, and how much we've enjoyed it. All right, let's get to our pins across the world. and I'll give you a little breakdown on uh, where we are. By the way, uh, uh, tip off, and as I think I think you probably have have got this figured out. Local TV is done. So if you want any local broadcast, it's Ron and I. I kind of alluded to that. I didn't, I don't know if everybody um kind of understood that that's the way it works uh let's go to a san francisco pin matthew bennon hey i'm the guy that tapped you on the shoulder and yelled locked while you were crossing the street in san francisco a few weeks ago i don't know if you remember i told that story i saw you i wasn't exactly sure it was you so i decided not to say anything i didn't want to either a bug you or b bug some random guy it wasn't until you were two feet away from me i was confident it was you those odds were high enough for me to tap you on the shoulder yell out your name sure enough you yelled back Anyway, I guess my pin is from behind enemy lines. I currently live on the border of San Mateo and Burlingame uh, and commute up to the city to work. That's where I went to high school. Uh, I grew up in Salt Lake City, being raised in the good years of Stockton, Malone, and Sloan. There's no uh, moment in time I became a jazz fan. It's just always been a big part of me. I moved out of California nearly five years ago, first living in Palo Alto, which is a... Uh, followed by a little place you know well, Menlo Park, which is exactly where I grew up. So he, so Matthew pretty much uh, has lived in the place where I grew up and where I went to high school. For a few years before moving up north of the peninsula, my high school and college years, I would go with my friends on weekends and buy $5 tickets off the street and scream from the upper bowl. Now I'm an annual League Pass subscriber, catching all the games. Appreciate being able to stay connected in the social media with the likes of yourself and other Utah writers. He mentions a bunch of them, but why should I give them love? Just kidding. Uh, thanks for your work. Pass along many thank- my thanks to those and other guys as well. Okay. Um, he has a whole story about statistics here. Um, and uh, I'm going to leave that out just for sense of time, not because I disrespected uh, the story. All right, let's, let's do this. So this is a really interesting matchup. Uh, one, because they're awesome. Okay, so let's just make sure we understand how awesome they are. They're 114 at nine at home and nine at home over the last three years. 114 and nine. Like if you go back to how dominant we were at home, and they're better than in our heyday, and they're better than that. They're 93 and 30 on the road. Like, that's insane. Um, they have 15 wins this year where they trailed by 10 or more. That they, they're 207 and 39 in three years. I mean, it's just. They're remarkable. Their three main lineups, Steph, Clay, Durant, Draymond, and Zaza, that one's plus 23 for 100 possessions. Steph, Clay, Durant, Draymond, and Andre Iguodala. their death lineup is plus 24. Steph, Clay, Durant, Draymond, and ja- Javel McGee is plus 36. Their top seven four-man lineups are all plus 20. Plus 20. With Steph Curry on the floor, their offensive rating is a 118. League, like the best in the league is them at 111. I mentioned this the other day, and now we get into, so that's, so that's, okay. They're, and they finished the, they've, they've won 19 of their, or 18 of their last 19. That would be the other note on them. Okay, now let's get into, so we have established that they're great. Uh. Now let's get into some interesting aspects to who they are uh, from preparation, and then I'll turn the show over to Danny LaRue and, and my conversation. They're the number one shooting it team in the league in the restricted area. That's the area where I think there's a misnomer about them. You've got to stop them around the paint first. They're, as much as everyone talks about their outside shooting, which is awesome, They're actually the sixth best team above the break in the number two corner three shooting team, which are both terrific. But they're the number one team in the restricted area at 67%. League average is 61. So you've got to cut that off. That's where Rudy could have a huge impact on this series. What's unique to them is they run about the – they've set the fewest on-ball picks of any team in the NBA. They lead the league in off-ball picks. They play very similar. Portland plays very similar to this. They so they that we set the most picks on the ball. They set the most picks off the ball. We run a lot of off-ball picks too. Um, the two. These are the two lowest post-up, corner Synergy, two lowest post-up teams in the NBA. So if you're going to try to handle the Warriors, which, you know, seems virtually impossible, the first thing you're going to do is you have got to get them out of transition because that's where they're getting a huge amount of their buckets at the rim they're the number 2 transition team in the NBA but the, you know in truthfulness they're also the number 2 half court team in the NBA so just you know realize that it's not like that it's not the problem here is by the way is you're just trying to make them more you're trying to make them less comfortable than they would be otherwise i that they but they don't have weaknesses right with the clippers there were things you could do where you kind of said oh well that that hurts them we don't have that 18% of their possessions are in transition so one out of every five possessions, they're in transition. One out of every four off a miss, they're coming at you. The And their effective field goal percentage, which is, for those who don't know, effective field goal percentage, it weighs three-point shooting and makes every shot as though it was a two. In transition is 75%. <laughs> so you've just got to try to limit that number. That's... So the first thing you're trying to do is get them out of transition. The second thing you're trying to do is get them off the rim. Their percentage... um, Hmm, I don't really understand that note anymore. Oh, 65%. Uh, I'm not sure I understand that note anymore. I'll have to look at what that note was. Sorry. I have 36% of their half-court points are three-pointers. Number one half-court rim percentage team in league. And I'll have to figure out my next note. Sorry. Um, so there's the first thing. The second thing, the first thing is transition. The second thing is at the rim the third item is if you can eliminate their catch and shoot game. Now we're really pushing beyond where you might want to be. So, Clay Thompson catch and shoot contrast to putting it up on the deck is a really dramatic swing. Clay Thompson's the number one catch and shoot player in the league. So, Clay Thompson if you can make him, and, it, you know, everyone knows this, everyone goes into every game, you're just, you're in the playoffs, and so you hope there's a chance that maybe you can make him do this a bit more. Uh, but Clay Thompson, on, really, if you can, if you can make him put on the floor and get off the three point line is where you're, you're in good shape. He's, he shoots eight percentage points better on catch and shoots than he does on, uh, on off the bounce plays, and he shoots six catch and shoot threes a game. The trick, though, is the, you know you overplay Klay Thompson, and then you got Steph and uh, and Durant. They, they back to the transition aspect of things. They take seven threes a game in the first six seconds of the shot clock. So that's that's what you've got to try to get done. So that's on the that's on the defensive end of things. Now on the um on the offensive side. Interestingly, this matchup is the two best half-court defensive teams in the league. The Jazz and the Warriors, the two best half-court defensive teams in the league. Now on the offensive side, they switch at a higher rate than anyone else in the league. And what you have to prevent is us becoming stagnant against the switching. You want to prevent being stagnant against the switching, so you're going to have to attack the switches. Get into the paint, get them to overshift, move the ball around. Draymond freelances on defense the same way Chris Paul does. So the same way we talked about last series that George Hill um was a key to be able to make some plays, get some opportunities, take advantage of Chris Paul's freelancing. The Jazz power forward is going to have to do the same. So Boris, who had a very good shooting series, probably needs to have another very good shooting series for the Jazz. Joe Johnson, when he's in the game, uh, probably needs to have the same, uh, but in a different way. Maybe maybe getting Joe in a little bit more of a catch-and-shoot game than the dribble-penetration game because of Draymond's freelancing. So what's also interesting about this series is the the aspect here, um That in the regular season, the Jazz played with George Hill in one of the three games. Gordon Hayward in... there's, There's nothing to be taken from any of the three regular season games. Like I did all my work on... There's not a single thing that you can take from any of the three regular season games. To say to yourself, yeah, that relates to what's going on in this series. So it's, you know, they're great. Steph's going to be taking his 10 threes a game. Uh, Steph's much better at home than he is on the road this year, which is weird. And it's going to just be a case of whether or not the Jazz can uh, slow this game down to a grinding halt. Uh, The Jazz kept them under 100 possessions. In all three games they played this year, which they did very, very rarely. Uh, I think they only had about 20 games all year uh, where that was the case. I'm actually going to do a little research on all of their games, which they were under 100 possessions, or maybe even uh, under 97 possessions. Just a really slow game. Under 100 is pretty fast for us. Under 97 and see... Uh, if there's any common thread between that. But that'll be today's project, and I'll tweet it out if it's there. All right, that is kind of my breakdown on where we are, what the analysis says. Um, I I think we have a style of play that can cause them problems with our multiple ball handlers. I think we have a style with Rudy Gobert protecting the paint that can cause them problems. I think with our slow pace, we can cause them problems. Uh, But they might be the greatest team that's ever been compiled. All right, that is Locked On Jazz. Danny LaRue, Locked On Warriors, going to take over next. Special thanks uh, to Danny for kind of doing the Combo Crossover Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Promo code L-O-C-K-J-A-Z-Z gets you three free meals on Blue Apron. If you'd like to sponsor during the playoffs, email me at DLock09 at gmail.com. I actually have some open inventory. DLock09 at gmail.com. All right, here is the... Fabulous. Lockdown Warriors host, Danny LaRue, as we crossover podcast to get you ready for the series. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Ah, uh, Danny, fired up. A lot better than doing locker clear out today. Oh, man. I, I mean, I can't even
1: really imagine that dynamic because the Warriors haven't played in a Game 7 since the team that you guys played in your Game 7, the Los Angeles Clippers.
0: Uh, that's true, and uh, that's the last time the Warriors lost a Western Conference playoff series. Uh, no, it was, you know, uh, there's nothing like Game 7. I was walking around San Francisco we landed last night, just the streets, and I just wanted to, like, scream and yell. I would have I fit in fine because, you know, I was, like, near market in that area. So uh, me just walking the streets screaming and yelling, I would have been just fine because everybody seems to be doing that. Um, theirs are more drug-induced. Mine was just an NBA win-induced. And now, now it's time for the Jazz to go face what might be the greatest team ever compiled in the history of the NBA and beat them. How's that? It's going to be a lot of fun.
1: I mean, I don't think you and I have talked about it as much, but I've been excited about the prospect of this series since about February, because Utah is a special combination of guys that we really haven't seen fully actualized. And it's very possible that this series is the closest that they get this entire season.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I think they're playing as well as they played. They're a different team today than they were two weeks ago. I think they have a larger belief in each other i think they have a larger belief in themselves and i think that as from a leadership standpoint which has has carried them through a, a seven game series and delivered on a, at a remarkably high level for them putting them in positions to succeed so so as a collective unit uh they're they're very different than they were a while ago i'll say this i, I want to see if you think i'm crazy i I've, i think the warriors are you know you know, historically great. I, I think I was really early on that bandwagon three years ago. Um, they've done nothing to make you get off it other than kicking somebody in the groin and costing your team a championship. Uh, so I think there's four things you have to do to be able to beat the Warriors. And I'd be curious to see if you agree. So one is I think there's a misnomer on what they are offensively. They shoot. An absurdly high percentage in the restricted area, about four percentage points higher than anyone else in the league, and about seven percentage points above league average. And they score more points, I think, in the paint, in the restricted area, and they do from behind the arc. So the first thing you've got to do is protect the rim at an elite level and take that away from them. The I, second, th- oh, go you, ahead, go through all four. That's fine. All right. So the second thing you have to do is you have to have uh, multiple pick and roll ball handlers, so they can't hide Steph. And as they overshift and over-rotate, you have another option in your play. It's why the Clippers, I think, have such a hard time. Is Once the ball's out of Chris Paul's hands, they just don't have anything else, and then the Warriors kill them. And the th- the thir- then I think you have to damage them on the offensive glass. So those are the three, and then the fourth one is I think you have to get lucky. Like you have to by by forcing them away from the rim. You have to you have to make some shots and they have to miss some shots. I mean it's the old make or miss thing, but you have to get a little lucky because they're they're a hell of a shooting team and so they don't do that very often. But those are the those are the four things when I look at it. if you're going to beat the Warriors and the, what makes them so great is that that last one you could do the first three if you don't get the last one you're probably out of luck.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I phrased the second one a little bit differently, and it's it's the same idea, it's just phrased a little differently, which is that what the Warriors system, especially when they're switching a lot, what it does is it forces you into playing a lot of one-on-one, a lot of isolation or near-isolation, it can be isolation-adjacent, and... So the guys who are good at that are often good pick-and-roll ball handlers, so it is is a similar situation. That's part of the reason why the Thunder, in prior iterations at their best, could actually work in that way, because they could get into matchups they liked and then use it. I mean, Kevin Durant was one of the best players ever against the Warriors because that's what he wanted in the first place. So it's a little bit different. You can do it through pick-and-roll, and And the thing is that the Jazz are good in both ways. You know, somebody like Gordon Hayward, if, if they get the right guy and a switch on him, or Joe Johnson, we saw this in the... The game yesterday against the Clippers. You know, Joe Johnson, when he got into the, those circumstances, he can take advantage, force help, and pass out of it. And that's the other one that I really wanted to, to, to mention, is teams that move the ball well. That doesn't mean necessarily that they do it all the time or that it's a part of their system, but that when they get additional pressure, they don't turn it over and they make good decisions. And the Jazz added veterans that are pretty good at that you know boris dia has has his own flaws but he's a very good guy at finding the right passer gordon hayward's good at this joe johnson's good at this and that's part of why i found the jazz so interesting against the warriors and found the clippers distinctly uninteresting because while blake griffin and cp are wonderful at that the rest of their team is inconsistent jamal jj reddick austin rivers you know those guys didn't do that the jazz guys do
0: uh, it's in. That's interesting. Um, the Clippers, I think, have proven to be uninteresting against the um against the Warriors, right? Like, well, I like would we, say
1: Warriors fans find it interesting because it's so immensely
0: satisfying. So fun, but yeah. The, the question, uh, the other aspect on this one, I, I don't know if I'm building off you very well here. I apologize. Is the Jazz are going to suck the heartbeat out of the game, and the Warriors are what I would call kind of a heartbeat team, right? They have a rhythm and a heartbeat. But if you look at the first. Nine seconds of their, from 15 to 22 on the shot clock, right? So 22-3 and 24 are offensive rebound putbacks, right? No one's shooting in the first two seconds of the shot clock. So if you look at 15 to 22 on the shot clock, the Warriors use 37.2% of their possessions, which is close to number one in the league. They're number two in, uh, in 18 to 22 in fourth year. The Jazz, Use 22.1%. So 37.2% of the Warriors' possessions are in the first nine seconds of the shot clock. Only 22% of the Jazz. Jazz are the slowest-paced team in the league. And what would be interesting to me, and I don't know if it's possible, and and I can flip this around. I'm trying to not inundate everybody with too many numbers here at one time. But if the Jazz do take the heartbeat out of the game, uh, how do the Warriors deal with that?
1: It's a fascinating question, and one that is sometimes hard to reconcile with the idea that defenses have a big part of it as well, because the Warriors put so much strain on an opposing team's transition defense, because just getting back isn't enough against them. You need to get back in the right way, and I think Utah's going to figure that out over the course of the series. I think they did a better job in the later regular season games than they did in the earlier ones, but a lot of it depends on how often... Either team can get stops because to me, the team that gets stops is the one that dictates pace because if Utah plays defense the way they did in like in the lot of that Clippers game, they were able to do it. But if they can't score, then the Warriors are going to, they're going to try to run whether it works or not is an open question. But I want to flip that a little bit. I agree with you that that's an important point, but... The other side of it is actually one of the biggest reasons that gives me pause about the Jazz, you know, putting a real scare into the Warriors. And I, I do think that they're they're a much better team than the Blazers are, and I, I think that they're going to win more games in the series than the Blazers did. But the Warriors' defensive bugaboo, beyond defensive rebounding, which is certainly there a fair amount, is their transition defense. The Warriors' transition defense is was pretty awful for a lot of this year, but. A, they score a lot, so they don't get into transition D that much. And in this case, the Jazz don't run, so it's not as big of an issue.
0: So the Jazz are going to play with an early th- – if they play correctly, they're going to play with what Coach Snyder calls an early thrust to the game, right? Right. And that doesn't mean that they're running the way the Warriors do, but they would like to get into their actions early and then drag you through the possession. And maybe almost the way, if you think of a time-of-possession football team, uh, wearing you down by pounding, you know, think of if you're using a Bay Area reference, use Stanford football as your reference point here. Like, we're just going to, they're going to pound you and pound you and pound you and pound you and pound you uh, until you're just tired of defending as the night goes on. The... So you're right. They're not going to just beat you down the floor for easy layups very often in that sense of transition. But they, if they play correctly, they're going to get into their sets with enough thrust that it forces – if you're not back in transition, you're playing the entire possession at a disadvantage. Right, that,
1: and that, yeah, and that, that gets into something that, that Nate and I have talked about a fair amount, which is the frustration with teams like who, the Toronto who
0: Raptors. Who's this Nate you speak of? No, I'm just kidding.
1: Uh, th- about something that the Toronto Raptors don't do, which is the Raptors do the same thing of like basically taking a long time on each possession, but they don't use the the first 15 seconds on the shot clock to do anything. But the Jazz do, and you're right about that. And also, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think it bears repeating in this context of the idea that the Jazz play so many competent ball handlers and so many competent decision makers that it's easier to get a mismatch. You're not spending the whole possession trying to get one guy on one guy. You're trying to get a couple of different options, and that's a lot easier to do, especially against a team that broadly is ambivalent towards that. You know, if you want, if you want to take the time to to work the Warriors into a spot. There, unless they do some stuff like pre-switching, which they, which Draymond is amazing at, you know, basically identifying what what's coming next and basically jumping the jumping it ahead of time, which is very cool, and I think we're going to see a lot of that in this series. But other than that, it's just it's it's a different thing, and I think the Jazz can make the Warriors pay for their approach more than any other team that they're going to face in the playoffs, other than maybe the Rockets. But that's just not the way the Rockets do things.
0: Yeah, so I like I like when. When water fights fire instead of fire fights fire, if that makes sense. So I get the Rockets' concept. Everyone talks about that the Rockets could score 120 points and the, then the Warriors score 118 and the Rockets win. But that's you're trying to beat the Warriors at what the Warriors do best, and might be the greatest team in the history of the NBA at doing that: playing fast, moving, constant movement, early action, three point shooting. You're, you're you're trying to beat the warriors at at what they do best. I think I don't think the warriors are beatable, so let me say that. But if you're going to write me a script of the warriors being beatable, it's getting them out of what they do best, playing slow and shooting a lot of threes, right? So now we get into a high, low possession high variance play by the opponent. That's With
1: me at all in this. That's basically what Cleveland did in twenty fifteen, and they came closer right. than they had any reason of being to winning that championship.
0: I, I thought, I thought the I thought the Cleveland David Black game plan in the NBA Finals was one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. I thought it was incredible.
1: Yeah, I, I actually thought Cleveland's game plan in twenty fifteen was better than twenty sixteen. It's just that they didn't have the personnel to execute it. And LeBron didn't. Like, I mean, LeBron, as crazy as this sounds, LeBron was so much better in games four, five, six, and seven of 16 than he was in 15 when many people thought he deserved finals MVP. I was not one of them, but many people did.
0: Right. Yeah, I just think the thing on the Warriors that's a little bit of a misnomer, and maybe not, maybe everybody else knows this except for me, is that they score more points within five feet than they do outside the three point line.
1: Yeah, but a big reason why they do that is because of their threat outside. Because the Warriors create, they create interior shots because of their threats on the perimeter. I mean, when you watch the Warriors, one of the craziest things is that Kevin Durant, when he's a hundred percent, gets at least two uncontested dunks a game just because things broke apart. Usually one of them's in transition, one of them's in half court because when the Warriors go five out or they go functionally five out because they're using one of their centers to set the screen, they get everybody discombobulated because they freak out about all the other guys who can shoot. And Stephen Curry, whether it's fair or not, and I think it is fair, draws so much attention that they create that. But the difference with the Jazz is they know what they are. They know what they're doing. And I think that they will freak out a little bit less than most other teams about Curry, and I think while they're very different guys, going through going through Chris Paul and the Clippers probably helped them in that process.
0: Well, that gets back to where I started—that this is just a different team today than it was two weeks ago, right? They they now have success against somebody and something. So does Gobert. Ba- All right, I agree with it. I mean, everything you're saying is dead on. Obviously, you're with this team every day, but with Gobert on the floor. And, and and this is such a weird thing. We don't have a very good sample this year because of the injuries and the weird lineups and no. everything else there that was went on no, this year. There between was no these two full teams.
1: strength game between these two teams that I can think of.
0: So the only thing that I came up with in my prep, and gosh, you know, I think you're welcome to tell me that this is not worth anything, but I, I just, you know, let's let's walk down this road for a second. The Warriors shot 67% in the restricted area this year. That's an insane number by the way. When Rudy Gobert was on the floor and it's 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 they they were still able to shoot 64%, which is an incredibly high number this year. Like is is Gobert going to be able to have an impact on the Warriors ability to get to the rim and score inside 5 feet?
1: I think he will, because I think that player the players on the Warriors are often spooked of him. Go, Steph Curry in particular. Curry is very aware of Gobert because Gobert makes plays that other guys don't. It's, it's, it's very different with him, and it's also part of the argument why I never thought DeAndre was a full-fledged defensive player of the year candidate, because the way that this team treats them as so different, because DeAndre, you know, he's around and all that sort of stuff, but with Gobert, it's like it's kind of like they're looking around, it's kind of like the monster in the woods, where it's like, oh crap, where is it? And I think that's going to be a part of it, but what I'm most interested in, in that realm is, given the idea that the Warriors are a little bit spooked by him, and I think the issue there is going to be frequency, not success, it's whether they shoot fewer shots in the restricted area, not mm, whether they go in. And so what I want to know is, and I think we'll get a better sense of this in games one and two, is, do they counter that by using Gobert in the primary action, you know, having the centers more setting setting screens, using DHOs, all that sort of stuff, or do they basically say, hey, yeah, Gobert's going to do that, we'll we'll go after him on broken plays and everything like that, but if we go after their power forwards in those same sorts of actions, because Draymond Green is the second best screener on the team, maybe the best screener on the team, but Pachulia's nasty too, like it's between those two guys, and use... Whoever the Jazz are going to play at the four, whether it's Boris Diaw, whether it's Joe Johnson, and just involve them in it and basically say, okay, if they're going to switch on to Steph Curry, they're just dead. And I don't know which way they're going to go with it. I don't know how, and it's weird to say Mike Brown, but how Mike Brown sees those matchups, but... I am so fascinated by what they want to do with Gobert during his time and then also how that changes when Derek Favors is in the game because I think Favors is a much better switcher. So maybe you change the approach based on which center is in the game.
0: Well, one thing that's interesting is according to Synergy, uh, the Warriors only run 17% of their plays as pick-and-roll ball handler, which is really really low. This is not – Unlike what the Jazz just faced, this is not a particularly high pick-and-roll team.
1: Right, because they do it a lot through handoffs and things like that. And and one of the issues that I have with the way plays are logged is that, it, depending on your system... dribble Only one? No, one of them. One of them. Okay. Is that the, the construct of some handoffs and a pick-and-roll are functionally the same. The idea is to put a big human being between a ball handler who then ends up with the ball, and his man who probably gets hit by the big guy. So, yeah, the Warriors run very little pick and roll, but especially for Warriors fans, you can think back to the way they did this with Bogut. It's actually easier to picture with Bogut than it is with Petrulia, just because it was such a centerpiece of their offense. It's basically the same thing. I mean, as a functional matter, it's basically who starts with the ball in their hands is the only difference.
0: The only difference is that they're not bringing their center up to 35 feet and forcing Rudy out of the paint.
1: That's true. And I think they'll do that sometimes. But yeah, it's true that the Warriors run very little conventional pick and roll. And there are a series of different reasons for it. I think a lot of it is just more scheme and I think they should run more of it. It's one of my biggest criticisms of Kerr, not in the regular season, but in those big moments, especially the weirdest part about this is in the highest leverage series, or maybe second now, depending on how you see these things, the Warriors have ever played in this with this group, the 2015 finals. Eventually they went to like Steph Draybon pick and rolls all the time. And it worked really, really well. And then the lesson from that was, eh, let's do it sometimes instead of let's do it all the time when things break down.
0: Yeah, but I thought the feeling was that they got burned on so, such switching last year in the finals that they've changed up their offense to be able to not be as switchable.
1: Right. That is a part of it. And it's interesting because some of that, in my opinion, was also Steph being not 100%. I mean, it's it's not something he will ever admit to. It's not something the team will ever admit to. But as somebody who has watched him his entire career, it is something that I understand to be true from my own experience. So what lessons they take from that will be interesting in that sense. But also, the guy who changes all of that switchable stuff is Kevin Durant because curry is sometimes switchable i mean he ha- he's he's kind of hit or miss with what he does clay thompson you he, know he he's gotten better at it kevin durant is not switchable kevin durant can just wreck anybody and if he is that guy i think he's what makes the difference in this series and I got some Jazz fans mad in the—I I found it kind of funny that they were listening to my Warriors preview of that series because I did one last night off the cuff after we after watching the Jazz win. And I talked about basically how the Jazz—I I worry about their perimeter defenders against the Warriors. And would be like, oh, you know, they have all these good guys, Joe Ingles and Gordon Hayward and all that. And I'm not knocking those guys. Though They've done a very good job this season. They just did a wonderful job against the Clippers. The Clippers I do think, not have
0: Kevin Durant. No, no. I, let's make sure we're perfectly clear about everything going on in this series. The Warriors are the best team in the league. The Warriors truly might be the best team ever compiled in the history of the NBA. So the only way that you're going to beat the Warriors is to completely dislodge them from their regular style of play. Like that's at least and that's where I think this series is interesting because the one that's what Cleveland was able to do them 2 years ago in the finals, uh, that's the one aspect of this that I just yeah. And even then they might just be so darn good they can beat you, right? Like does that make? I mean, that's what that's what this jumps out to. Not that, not that the, there's any area where the Jazz can actually match. I don't mean this critically to the Jazz, where the Jazz can actually match up. Like, yeah, I mean, no, you probably can't match up against these guys. Is it? But like, if you get them to play between four and seven in the shot clock, they suddenly become a very mediocre offense, right? Right. Their their effective field goal percentage and the last seven seconds of the shot clock, which they almost never see, I think they spend about 12% of their possessions there. Um, I think they, I, I don't have this in front of me, but I think that they were about uh, 17th or so in the league, maybe 15th in the league in effective field goal percentage in that time frame. Okay, well now, now they're not, and, and they might be a little better than that because I know in the last four seconds they're actually pretty darn good. Um, so let's call them top 10. Like, let's say that they're they're tenth in the league in effective field goal percentage in the final seven seconds. Yeah, they're unbelievable. Why? Because Kevin Durant can get a shot at any point in any time. To exactly your point, Danny, that they're. But but that is but that is the one aspect of this where like 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 let's see what happens. I don't know that the Jazz can get them there. Um, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the Jazz played the Rockets uh, in a game where the Jazz played particularly well this year and the Rockets couldn't get three attempts early in the game the jazz just would not let them get threes harden and capella were killing them on the pick and everyone and they got antsy they got uncomfortable like they knew we're supposed to shoot them out of threes we're supposed to do some of these and i just kind of wonder if you can get the warriors out of up tempo do they get antsy do they get uncomfortable do they get and and let me ask you this danny i hadn't thought about this before okay this is kind of media bs but so the Warriors play 104 possessions a game. Our last game against the Clippers was 88. Let's say we get down to a 92 possession, 93, 94 possession game. Well, let's say the Jazz really take the heartbeat out of the game. There aren't as many touches for these guys. Is that a problem? Not as long as they're
1: winning. I, I don't think it's going to be that way. I mean, one are, are the very different elements of this Warriors team compared to basically any other great one that i can think of is that is the way that they were put together with the the kind of the the long term guys all growing up together you know Draymond Clay and and Dr- and Draymond Draymond Clay and stuff and then Durant came in knowing exactly what he was getting into and there was no ambiguity about it everybody kind of knew and so it wasn't like Kobe and Shaq let's say where they they each had these expectations of themselves they kind of had built they built their own legacies and all that this is more it's in a way it's kind of more like a like a I don't know like a family in that way where the rules are already set and everybody kind of gets it and also this team doesn't have the same egos because they also haven't won anything together yet and they all want to win a lot and it's possible those issues are going to rear their heads a year or two from now. I, I, I'm open to that possibility. I don't know how this story ends, but I don't think that's going to be an issue in the near term. However, that gets into something that I think is very important, which is that, so let's say we get it down to 92 possessions, something in that range. The Warriors have an ability or a penchant to have a certain number of just bad possessions or miscues. Per game, And those things generally don't matter because the other possessions are just so much better than everyone else. But if they, you know, Steph Curry, like one that that people can remember, sorry to trigger some Warriors fans, is that behind the back pass he threw in game seven of the finals. You know, like they're just going to do some weird stuff like that sometimes. It's just the way that this team is. It's part of the freewheeling nature that Kerr has built. Those are a lot more damaging in a 92 possession game than a 104 possession game, because if they still happen at about the same frequency, then they take up a larger proportion of the opportunities.
0: Good point. It's a really good point. So the Warriors played uh, about 25 of their 82 games at under 100 possessions. So what's that? 35 percent, right? About that, yeah. Uh, all three of the games under, against the Jazz were under 100 possessions. The Warriors, I'm, I'm doing this just, I pulled this last night. The Warriors, uh, they're just. however, there does not seem to necessarily be a correlation between the Warriors' worst offensive nights of the season and low possessions, just to give you. Um, I went and pulled the Warriors' worst 10 offensive games last night to try to see if I could figure any common thread um, other than the fact that they don't make threes in those games and they don't, I mean... They shoot 27 percent from three instead of 38 percent from three, so that seems to be the common thread. Uh, it is not necessarily a slow-paced game that does that to them. I don't know if I, I don't know if I added anything there, but I what, tried to. No, no. Um, I so think, my, I my think point of my point of this is the Jazz are. Let me let me at least put a summary on a bunch of stupid little data there. My point is that the Jazz have shown the ability to slow down the Warriors, which most teams have. That may not be the end all of all things, because there does not seem to be a correlation between the Warriors slowing down and getting less good offensively.
1: I think that's true. And something else that I want to watch in this series, and these are two teams that, and the Warriors getting here is shocking at this point, is that there are two teams that are comfortable with some of their backup heavy units. And I don't know if the changeover, I mean, we also, the Warriors coaching circumstance is just so weird. If Mike Brown is just going to give the Warriors starters a little bit more push, a little bit more run in these games. And I think that if they do that, then it becomes even harder for the Jazz unless those guys get tired because they've basically been playing
0: 38 minutes a game or less, 36 the whole year. All right. What let's go to as we begin to wrap this, let's go to the coaching thing. We've kind of talked around it. How big a deal?
1: I don't think it's huge, but it is significant because what the, one of the most important things Kerr does is built. He built the kind of the framework, the ecosystem that the Warriors do. That ecosystem is already built, so that part of it isn't isn't a big thing. But he does do a good job of managing players, managing egos during a game, working the refs, and so I think it makes a difference. But I think it would make a much larger difference if he hadn't been there for the for the entire eighty-two.
0: Yeah. Again, I mean, I think it's. I think we're talking about things that are very, very small, if this makes sense. But I do wonder if it's 75-75, heading to the fourth quarter, Warriors are scuffling and Mike Brown starts to make an adjustment if those guys look across the, and buy it.
1: Yeah, that could be a problem, too. And, I mean, they have a lot of continuity in the other kind of coaches like Ron Adams and everything else. So they're going to have to make it work. And also – just how much it's weighing on the players. I mean, we we lose sight of this sometimes, but these are human beings, and they have a very deep connection with Kerr. And if it's you know if it's in the back of their minds, if it's something they're thinking about, not only can that just lead to thinking about other things, but just in terms of the way they interact with Brown, it's a, he's a new he's a newbie. He's one of the new additions to this team. So yeah, it, it certainly could be, and it's always hard to predict that kind of stuff because we don't we haven't seen anything like this basically ever before in a playoff series.
0: No, and I think that's a great point because one of the great strengths of uh, of Steve Kerr is that cultural happiness or looseness or whatever you know moment understanding the moment and the joyousness that he brings. It's easy when you you know have won more games than any team in the history um, of the NBA over three years to be that joyous. It makes it much easier. But I do think that is a part of who he is and life wise and culturally. And you wonder uh, whether that disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, at all in the process all right here's my other scenario i mean i'm just picking it little you know what you're trying to find is i think from the jazz standpoint how can you get four percent here and three percent here and two percent there and next thing you know you got 51 percent. you win a ball game warriors have not played in eight games and the last team they played could not be any more different than what the jazz how the jazz play
1: i think that that ties in with one of my overarching concepts of this and it's a lot of it's going to depend on how gobert's ankle is i think the jazz really need to win game one to have a chance in this series because the rest versus rust totally shifts about 30 minutes or something it can even be less depending on the team into it yeah the the time off is a big factor for the Warriors but they'll eventually get over that so if the Jazz basically just stay in their rhythm it's kind of like kind of like the idea if you just keep the car going a little bit I mean obviously you can't run out of gas or something like that but the Warriors have lost game one's in the playoffs before. They lost game 1 against the Oklahoma City Thunder last year. They lost they almost lost game 1 of the 2015 finals. They did not lose game 1 of the 2015 finals. But so those sorts of things are worth keeping an eye on. And I think they'll figure some of, some parts of it out for game 2, but if Utah can go in there and and sneak one on We Believe night, which would be kind of funny in in certain dark ways, that would be, you know, that's what they need. Because you have to win one of the first two games if you're the road team to win a series.
0: Yes, agreed. Yeah, I don't, I think, you know, I don't, I... I heard the Vegas odds had the Warriors favored by 13 in game one, so I think that tells you what people think the chances are of the Jazz winning the series. But... Well,
1: but, but you have to remember with that, I, people talk about the Vegas stuff all the time. It's like what Vegas is trying to do, as I understand it, is they're trying to get betting on both sides of it. So basically they're trying to get people to, to bet on the Jazz. They know that people are going to bet on the Warriors just for novelty and everything else like that. So whether that's where they actually see the disparity or that's
0: where they feel like they're
1: going to get betting on both
0: sides is an open question. Agreed, hundred percent. Well, it should be fun. I'm sure glad to be here. Yeah, I think that, I think it'll, you know. I think on both levels, I'm curious to see who the Jazz are. Uh, they proved to me to be much better than I thought they were in the last two, or at least not that they. Sh- I don't know if that's true. They showed me how good they could be the last two weeks, and I'm curious to see what they can do against what might be one of the great teams of all time.
1: I'm very excited for it. It's so much more interesting than
0: it would have been if the Clippers had won. Well, and you don't have to listen to Doc. <laughs> who I love. Oh, I, watching him Hey, game Doc, Doc
1: gave more. the greatest post-game press conference of my entire media life, so I'm never going to say that.
0: I love Doc, but you if you watch him coach a game, it's hard to watch. <laughs> well, with the of, of yeah. talking to officials.
1: Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Always great to have you on.
0: Well, thank you. And make sure, Jazz fans, you grab Lockdown Warriors with Danny. And if you Warrior fans want to come visit me, you're welcome to.